Welcome to Kildare Talks, where we listen and learn from the people who work across the county, offering us guidance and support on our health and well-being to help us live healthy and well. My guests today are Rosemary Plant and Dr. Jose Ayala. Rosemary is a Senior Health Promotion Officer and Smoking Cessation Specialist with the HSE, working in Kildare and West Wicklow. For the past 20 years, Rosemary has specialised in the area of tobacco control, which includes running one-to-one and group smoking cessation clinics and supporting smoke-free campuses. Rosemary has also developed the Quit for Youth programme with Jose. Probably the most important thing about Rosemary is that she's from Cork. Dr. Jose is also a health promotion officer based in the South Dublin Kildare West Wicklow region. As part of his role, Jose has worked in the area of tobacco control and smoking cessation, advocating for tobacco-free policies and helping many people quit smoking in one-to-one and group clinics as well. Guys, you're both very welcome. So I've spent a little bit of time looking at the HSE website on smoking just to get a little bit of background for today. And there's three facts, and I don't want to start off negative about smoking, but there's three facts really do stand out for me, if you don't mind me just sharing them. One in every two smokers will die from a tobacco-related disease. Smoking takes 10 to 15 quality years of your life, which is quite a bit. And in Ireland, smoking is the leading cause of avoidable death. Nearly 6,000 people die in Ireland each year from the effects of smoking and thousands of others suffer from smoking-related diseases. Now, there's many more facts and figures, but as I said, I don't want to start off on a negative point because I know myself, if I was a smoker, I probably would switch off by the second fact because if I'm a smoker, I know that is probably not the most healthiest of activities or behaviours to engage in. But we also know that smoking is highly addictive. So stopping is not as straightforward as what we would hope it to be. I suppose one of the main reasons that I'd like to have this conversation about smoking is I want people to hear you. I want them to hear your voice. I want them to learn how people like you who specialise in helping people stop smoking think about this so that our communities can understand the evidence-based support that's out there in our communities free of charge regardless of how long a person's been smoking or not. So really, really grateful that you've agreed to come in to have this conversation. So I've got a couple of questions, maybe just to start the conversation. I suppose one of them that I've been thinking about is, like, when did we start to smoke in its current form? In that you go into a shop, you buy your newspaper, or possibly a, a cup of coffee and a box of cigarettes, and you go about your daily business, and you have your coffee break during your working day, alongside your cigarette or you have a cigarette first thing in the morning before you have your breakfast or you sit down to watch the TV in the evening time and you have a couple of cigarettes or you go out for a drink in a pub in the olden days and you'd sit and smoke next to your people that you're having your drink with or nowadays you go outside to have a cigarette. Like when did all this behaviour start in its current form or do we even know? Did it just slowly creep in over life? I guess we can't go all the way back to when they first started smoking and the history of smoking, where the Native Americans were literally rolling up leaves of tobacco. Early Europeans came over to the Americas. They would have seen 
the Native Americans sort of stuffing these leaves of tobacco in their noses and almost like smoking it. Yeah. I think even back then they knew it wasn't the best for you even once they started it. I guess modern smoking, I guess we have the tobacco industry to really blame, I guess, for a lot of the marketing and the way they've sort of normalized it in the culture. So do they just capitalize on something that human beings have been wanting to do? They definitely capitalized on the addictive aspect of it because early on they learned very quickly how to actually get the maximum amount of nicotine out of that tobacco leaf and into a person's circulation. You know, they they knew to add certain amount of chemicals to the actual tobacco leaf, which would allow more nicotine to be released or the maximum amount. Because a cigarette in its current form, it really is one of the ultimate delivery mechanisms for nicotine. So it's been optimized, it's been optimized. for that nicotine hit. Yeah, absolutely. There really isn't much that can get it into your system as fast as smoking it from a cigarette. It's within seven to 10 seconds. It's across the blood-brain barrier. It's in your brain and hitting those receptors. You know, the tobacco company has definitely maximized that and they've normalized it. Like if you look at the old ads from the 50s in the States and in Europe and things, you have the doctors smoke this kind of smoke camels or whatever the, the, the brand of cigarette. And it was a totally different mindset at the time. And obviously people didn't have the scientific knowledge to know exactly what was in tobacco smoke and how bad it really was. And of course, the tobacco companies would have been marketing all around that, dancing around this idea saying, you know, it's not really bad for you if you don't smoke too much or, you know, smoke the right ones or this kind of thing. When did we become aware that it was bad for us, Rosemary? It took about 40 years for us to actually get that research and find out what exactly were in cigarettes because there's over 7,000 chemicals, unfortunately, in each cigarette. So it took us a very long time to get that research and get that evidence to understand that cigarettes were doing harm to the person that was smoking. And then it took even longer to find out about what we call secondhand smoke or environmental tobacco smoke. So a lot of the time, if you were the smoker, we thought it just damaged your health and your lungs, but that the rest of your family weren't affected. But they were sitting in the same room as you. So they were actually what we call passive smoking. So they were actually taking in that smoke that you were expelling and getting those chemicals inside of them and doing damage to their heart and their lungs. So it took a long time for that evidence to come because obviously the tobacco industry didn't want us to know what they were putting into them, what chemicals they were adding, how much damage it was doing. They just wanted to sell their product. The point you made earlier about the one in two, it's a very stark point. I suppose we'd, in health promotion generally, would try and come from the positive side of things and go, yes, we know there's a lot of chemicals. Yes, we know they do a lot of damage. But a smoker is addicted and they're not stupid. They know they're not doing them any good, but they might find it hard to stop. So we would always talk about, well, 20 minutes after you've stopped smoking, your blood pressure will come back to normal because nicotine is a stimulant. Carbon monoxide is one of the chemicals that's in cigarette smoke that it comes out of your heating unit, the exhaust of your car. You're not supposed to breathe it in, but you do in cigarette smoke. And we have a lovely carbon monoxide monitor that we use in the clinics and in the groups that will show you a number or a colour and show you how much carbon monoxide is actually in your system right now. And again, the good news about giving up smoking is 24 hours after you stop smoking, carbon monoxide is completely cleared out of your body. It's the first chemical to leave. And we can prove that to you with the carbon monoxide monitor. So sometimes smokers might find it difficult to understand or appreciate what's happening inside their body with smoking and the chemicals and the damage it's doing. Whereas when you have a monitor to show you something, show you a number and say, okay, you started off at 
let's say 30 or 40 and now you're down to 15 or you're down to zero when you stop. You have something to kind of gauge it on and see something physical from giving up smoking. We try and talk about all the positive things. Smokers aren't stupid. They know they're not good for them. We've had all the warnings on the packets, all the pictures and, you know, most smokers will tell you, oh, I don't even see those anymore. They don't mean anything to me. They're my packet of cigarettes. I'm just going to buy them and smoke them. I had one lady that came to me a while back that when the pictures came out first, there was one particular picture of the cancer on the throat. I think there was a, wasn't a very nice picture and she wouldn't buy that packet if the shop assistant gave her the packet with that actual picture on. She'd give it back, you know, give me another box. I just can't look at that picture but still would smoke the cigarettes, but just not out of that particular box. It did have some effect on people seeing those kind of pictures, but in the main, most smokers would say the first time it shocked me a little bit or I was uncomfortable with it, but after that I just got used to it and because I was so addicted to them, I would just keep buying them no matter what. Is that the power of addiction then that makes you want to avoid sort of the ugly stuff? Are cigarettes one of the most addictive products then? Yeah, they definitely are. They definitely are. Over the years, I've had many clients in the clinics who had given up heroin. And obviously that was a struggle, but the cigarettes, they were finding even more difficult in many ways. And many of them did manage to quit. So that was a good thing. You know, you're talking about a very powerful and insidious addiction. And, you know, by definition, I guess we can define an addiction where you're going to carry out a particular activity or, or something and you want to stop even though your rational mind tells you it's bad and yet maybe there's bad health consequences and yet you still struggle to quit doing it. This is the problem with cigarettes is, you know, many people think it's just a habit, they can quit, but it's, it is a combination of the two. And it's hard to know when the habit and the addiction meet and where to draw the line because they're so intertwined. There's all the rituals throughout the day when you smoke, the first one with a cup of coffee, cup of tea, after lunch, after sex, well, you know, all these kind of particular times where you might have a cigarette. So there's that, plus you have the actual physical addiction to the nicotine, which is at a neurochemical level in the brain. And the World Health Organization would put heroin, cocaine and nicotine all on the same shelf from a level of addiction point of view. And I suppose one of the problems with cigarettes as such is that we don't talk about them as a drug generally because they're legal, they're available in your corner shop. You can go in and buy 500 cigarettes if you have enough money. Nobody's saying, be careful now, take one three times a day. You can't buy 24 paracetamol together, but you can buy 500 cigarettes once you have the money. Nobody's saying that this is very addictive. Be careful, mind yourself, take it slowly. Because they're legal and because they're just seen or talked about as, oh, it's just a cigarette, you know, what's the harm? We don't think of them as a drug. We don't generally talk about, do you realise you're addicted to them? People say, oh, should I just have a cigarette, you know, at the weekends or I just have a cigarette twice a day or whatever? They're smoking small numbers. So they don't, I suppose, think about the addiction side of things because it's not really talked about as much, even though they're aware they're addicted. Whereas somebody who's on heroin or cocaine, they will think and talk about their drug habit or that they're addicted and that they need to go to detox. They need to get all this support to actually come off the drugs. Whereas a lot of smokers think, well, I have to do this on my own. Whereas the support and help that's there from coming to the clinics or the groups, they're four times more likely to actually stop and stay stopped. Getting that help, getting that behavioural support and using what we call a licensed smoking cessation aid. So something like your nicotine replacement therapy or your Champex, which is a prescription medication. They double somebody's chances of stopping and staying stopped as opposed to going cold turkey. And then you're four times more likely 
to stop and stay stopped if you get your behavioural support and use a licensed product as well. What brings a person to a clinic then? Do people have to come to a point whereby they realise that they're an addict? Like, Do you have to see yourself in the same way as maybe somebody with heroin addiction or a cocaine addiction? Not necessarily. I mean, that is something that we would bring up in the clinics and I would ask somebody, so would you agree that this is an addiction? You know, and many people will agree, but then some people will not. You know, they'll just say, oh, it's just a habit. To come into the clinic, they don't necessarily have to have this identity of I'm an addict kind of thing. What they really do need is to want to quit. Like we can't make anybody quit smoking. They have to want to. One of the things about our services is that it's a very non-judgmental service. We just have a conversation just like we're having right now. And we try and work through some issues try and develop a quit plan at the end of it. You know, what's worked, what hasn't worked. So it is very non-judgmental and we're not there to just show you black lungs and give out to you and say, oh yeah, you know, you're going to get this, you're going to get cancer, you're going to die. No. You know, and maybe that person has heard that already many times, been told that, and that's not what they need to hear. And the research shows that's not what's effective either. It's about looking at a solution-based, action-based plan where you're kind of working with the person to see, okay, your journey through this is going to be a little bit different than the other person's, but there's some things that we can recommend that are really going to help. And just the act of talking to somebody who is knowledgeable is going to really help. It puts some structure on your quit, and that's really where a lot of the benefit comes from, just talking about it and making that commitment to yourself. What brings a person to that place where they want to stop smoking though? It's different for everybody because it could be a health risk, it could be the guilt because, you know, they maybe they have children and they're having the sneaky smoke down the end of the garden. You know, it could be for any number of reasons. The money, yeah, absolutely. Smoking is an expensive habit today, isn't it? Like it's up quite a bit. It's yeah. very expensive, yeah. People have lots of different reasons and we would generally say it doesn't really matter what your reason is. Like it doesn't have to be, oh, I had a heart attack, I need to stop or I've been diagnosed with breast cancer, I need to stop or, you know, they're all big things and they are reasons why people come to us. But I mean, again, I would have had an elderly lady many years ago that came to one of my clinics and her main reason was that her son had emigrated and she was on a pension and she couldn't afford to get the flight and she wanted to see where he lived because she couldn't visualise it in her head. It was kind of before the days of the Viber calls and that, so there wasn't video. It was just on the phone and he used to ring her regularly. And she said, he'll put me up. I won't have any accommodation costs or any food costs, just the flight, but I can't afford to go. So her main motivation was to get money, to get on a flight to see where her son was living. And she was happy once she'd get there once because then when he's ringing, she could say, oh, well, I know what the kitchen's like. I know what the sitting room's like. You know, I've been in that bedroom and he's talking about where he's living. And that was her main motivator because she said, if I continue to smoke, I won't be able to save money to get a flight to go to see where my son lives. So, you know, you'll have different reasons and different stories from different people as to why they've come to you. But as Jose has said, generally, you just need somebody who wants to stop. And I suppose I would sometimes distinguish between having to stop and wanting to stop. Most smokers will say they want to stop, but sometimes they will come in and say, oh, the doctor said I have to stop, but they won't do the operation, or my children are given out to me all the time, so I have to stop, or I have to. And there is a difference between coming in with that thought, oh, I have to stop because, or I actually now want to stop. And generally, smokers won't come in saying, oh, I'm addicted, or I now smoke 40 cigarettes a day, I used to smoke 20, you know, I have to give them up or whatever. They, for different reasons, come and go, 
actually, I want to stop now. I need your help. I've tried before on my own again. You'll hear that quite a bit. And I wasn't able to manage it again. I would say, well, you know, if you were to do your driving test tomorrow and you never had a driving lesson in your life, what's the likelihood of you passing your driving test tomorrow? Fairly slim if you've never driven a car before. And it's the same with stopping smoking. Preparation really is the key. And the more preparation you can do before you stop, the easier the stop is actually going to be. And I suppose that's part of coming to the clinic or the group where you get that support and that information and that kind of how to. I mean, one of the examples one of the clients said to me one time when I was explaining on week one about a smoke free zone to them and he was going to make the car a smoke free zone. I was suggesting to put the cigarettes in the boot before he started on his journey. And he said, how come I never thought of that before? That sounds so simple. And I said, well, you just didn't think of it at the time. You weren't in that headspace. Now you're really thinking about stopping. And we're talking about the planning and some of the best ways of doing it. Because he did a lot of smoking in his car and he had long journeys, I made the suggestion. And again, it is always suggestions and asking, well, what do you think about this? Would you be willing to give this a try? We don't ever tell people what to do or we don't give out to them or show the black lung or any of that. Smokers know that information. That's not what we're there for. We're there to help and support and encourage somebody and go, look, try this for a week, see how you get on. And that's what we'd be saying the first week. If you're making your car smoke-free zone for the week, put the cigarettes in the boot so that when you're heading off on your journey, you'll automatically go to get the cigarettes out of the side pocket or the dash or wherever you normally keep them. And your hand will automatically go there for a while because that's what you've been used to for a long time. But if they're in the boot, you have to stop, pull over, get outside your car, have your cigarette. You probably won't have time to do it because most of us are in a rush to get to that meeting, to get home, to get wherever. So you won't have that cigarette. Or if you did get out, you'd have a half a cigarette and feel maybe silly standing outside your car smoking and get back in and go on your journey. So it's about the addiction side of it, the habit side of it, and what I would say as well is the psychological side of it. Psychologically, what are you using cigarettes for? Again, most smokers will say it helps them with stress, it helps them deal with things, gives them that five minutes out to calm down or whatever. You have to look at all those three areas. I often say it's a bit like a three-legged stool. You have the physical addiction, the psychological addiction and the habit. And you need to deal with all three or else the stool will fall if you only deal with two of the three legs. Coming to the clinics and the groups, you're dealing with all that and each session will build on the session before. As I say, looking at the preparation, looking at the smoking cessation aids, doing a quit plan after you've quit, maybe quit smoking without weight gain. Again, particularly a lot of women will worry about putting on weight after giving up smoking. I did get into trouble saying that before to a man. He said, no, us men worry about it as well. But generally, 99.9% of the time, it's the ladies that say to you, oh, I'd love to give up smoking, but I'd be worried I'd put on weight. And if I put on weight, I'll just go back smoking. So it's again about talking through how it is possible to quit smoking without gaining a load of weight. How much willpower is required to stop smoking, Jose? Do you know when people will they'll try and stop something, they go cold turkey? Like, how much willpower is required? Yeah, in my experience, look, willpower sometimes is one of those words that I know what it's implying, and it's to me it means you have to have a certain amount of commitment, a certain amount of fortitude, let's say, and want to do it. If we can think about it from that point of view, rather than willpower as in like, some sort of superhuman strength that you uh-huh, need. So you're, you're ready, you're willing to go through that pain barrier, that determination to achieve something despite the growl to have that cigarette. Yeah, exactly. I guess in some ways just open to be able to get through this, work through it, 
plan through it and do what needs to be done. Like, are you willing to do what it's going to take to get it done? Again, it doesn't matter what your reason is. As long as that's your reason and you want to quit and you're doing it for yourself or for whatever is going to pull you through, that's what we need to stick with. So I think sometimes people get put off by this idea of, I haven't got the willpower. Like the first thing they'll say is, I haven't got the willpower. Let's unpack that. What does that really mean? Is that just because you've tried before and it didn't work? And so you now think you're weak or you can't do that? That's not really the case. At the end of the day, tobacco addiction has a clinical definition as well, a chronic relapsing condition. So relapse, that word that we all know of is something when you try something and it doesn't work and you get back on that wheel and you just need to keep trying. And that's what happens with smoking. You need to try a good few times for most people. You could get lucky the first time, absolutely no reason why not. But the main thing is you keep trying, right? And you have that commitment. So that's what I mean about willpower. You know, just because you didn't work it last time, it didn't work for you. That doesn't so that's, that's okay then. So it shouldn't be expected that when somebody walks into your clinic to get that support, that they hit that goal within the first six weeks. Absolutely not. And we're not there to tell you when you've got to quit. We're there to facilitate and work with you. At the end of the day, you're the expert. When you walk into our clinic, you're the expert, actually, because it's your life. This is your thing that you're going to deal with. So we're facilitating you. We're giving you the information. We're talking with you and helping you. But at the end of the day, when you walk out of the clinic, you've got to make it happen, right? So that's under the basis that we're working under. So we're never going to tell somebody exactly when to do it. Now, a part of what our program is to set a quit date. You do have to commit, right? You do have to commit and say to yourself, say, look, this is when I'm going to do it. And then that just makes sense because then you can plan. Like as Rosemary was saying, preparation is so important. You can plan around this. There's an end goal because if you just leave it hanging and say, you know, I'll just keep cutting down. That's generally where it doesn't work. So easy to kind of relapse and go back smoking even more than you were smoking before. So setting a quit date is an important part of our program, but we're never going to tell you, okay, yeah, you've got to set your quit date tomorrow or next week or whatever. But sooner, probably better than later, because you don't want to leave it too long. It's good to take advantage of, we strike while the iron is hot, right? It's not about having a cookie cutter approach where, you know, you have to come to us with this really powerful willpower and uh, I'm going to do it and everything has to be perfect. No way. Look, a lot of times it's through the process of talking to us and going through the process of engaging with the service. That's when it starts to build your own confidence. Once they start talking through and they see, oh, it's nothing to be afraid of. This guy or this girl is not going to tell me I have to do this or do that. Then they start building their own confidence and you can see it grow. They set that date and then it's amazing. It really is when people get motivated they can get behind it for themselves and they succeed. It's From our point of view, it's very satisfying to see that happen. Can I pick up on something Rosemary said about weight gain? Is there a difference between the genders when it comes to wanting to stop smoking and then being successful then at quitting? Generally, I would find females in general are more emotionally attached to their cigarettes, whereas men in general, when they come in, they see stopping smoking in a more black and white way and they want to be kind of told more what to do and how to do it and when to do it. It's more about that process. It's more about coming along the journey with the person and supporting them where they're at. Yes, we're not talking about six months or 12 months time of setting a quit date, but we're certainly not saying it in the first week 
or two, generally speaking, we try to look at around three of setting a quit date because they've done the preparation week one and two. They've learned about the nicotine replacement therapies and that people do gain a lot of confidence when they come back a week two and said, gosh, I managed that or I didn't smoke in the kitchen in the evening time like I used to the week before. And if I can do that, then maybe I can do something else. So it is about building their confidence, taking small steps at the start so that they're coming back very positive the next week and going, the gentleman with the car, like he came back and went, I never thought I could do that, that I could go a whole week and not have a cigarette in the car. Yeah, I thought about it loads of times and I put my hand down, like you said, I would. And because they were in the boot, I didn't actually have a cigarette because I hadn't time to stop and pull in and have one. So he came back the next week going, gosh, if I can do that, I can do more. Like I never thought I'd manage that starting off. Now I am more confident and thinking about, well, maybe I can set a quit date. Great. I've done the whole day at work now. Let's see how this evening goes at home. Because I used to always smoke a good few cigarettes in the evening. They might go to bed even early that night and go, if I'm in bed, I can't smoke or go have a shower or something. I can't smoke there. Grand. I have one day under my belt. The NRT, the nicotine replacement therapy has really worked or really helped and really supported me. Let's see if I can manage tomorrow. And day by day, you're getting there, but you're not thinking about that forever bit. And then as the days and the weeks and the months and the years go by, you're not thinking about smoking or cigarettes like you were day one or two. Generally, smokers will say the first two weeks are when they find the hardest or when they're thinking about cigarettes nearly all day, every day. Whereas week three, when they're coming back to you after being off cigarettes, they're going, actually, I didn't think about a cigarette all morning now that you've asked me. Whereas last week, I was thinking about them all the time or everyone I passed in the street seemed to be smoking or things like that. Whereas now they're not on my mind as much. I'm actually able to have a cup of coffee and not think of a cigarette. I'm able to go on break with the smokers and not think about a cigarette, whereas last week that was much more difficult for me. It's like a fading out of the behaviour. It does take time to re-establish new behaviour and maintain that new behaviour of being a non-smoker. That doesn't happen overnight. And that's not to say somebody in six months or a year's time doesn't ever think about a cigarette, but it's a passing thought as opposed to a physical craving. Whereas the first two to three weeks, your body is physically craving and physically wanting a cigarette. Whereas when you're six months or 12 months off smoking, let's say you're at a wedding or something and somebody says to you that hasn't seen you, for the last year. Oh, we're going out to have a cigarette there and they're going, oh, actually, I don't smoke anymore. And they're not thinking about cigarettes all the time. Whereas the first two or three weeks, they are definitely thinking about it because most smokers, when they're coming to us, they've smoked for a number of years. They could have smoked for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So something like that doesn't go away overnight. But as I say, there's a difference between that physical craving and physically wanting. Most smokers will say to you, like, I was dying for a cigarette. I'd kill somebody for a cigarette. That real deep physical urge and want is there at the start more so whereas the weeks and months go on you might have a passing thought or you might have a bad day and go God if I had a cigarette now I'd smoke one but it's that passing thought or that fact that you've used cigarettes before to kind of deal with stress or strain straight away your head would go God I need a cigarette now to deal with that and then you're going Oh, actually, I don't smoke anymore. So now, how am I going to deal with it without the cigarette? I've worked in the area of mental health promotion for a long time and people will say that they use certain behaviours to deal with stress and cigarettes is one of them. Like I've worked with a lot of people that have lost their job, you know, the consequence of the economic crash and the idea of having to give up their cigarettes on top of that, they will say it's their cigarettes that gives them a sense of sanity. We know that there's a physical addiction, but there's also a habit attached to it. Can people stop smoking during stressful periods in their lives, like job loss, relationship difficulties, problems with the kids? Can people still stop smoking when they're going through those types of challenges? 
when stress is a real feature in their life. As practitioners, do you help people with replace that cigarette with different stress management techniques? Yeah, and that is something that does happen quite a bit. Stress does play such a big factor in smoking. So yeah, we would try and help people around sort of mindfulness techniques, point them to resources around that. We might even do a little mindfulness session in one of the sessions. And again, just helping people to cope with and think around how can they cope with the stress and the different changes. And of course, if they needed further support, we'd be happy to refer them to other services, either within the HSE or within the community that can help them through that because it is such an important part. We say to them, there's no perfect time to try and quit. There's always going to be stress. This is the thing. And stress is different for everybody. It is a normal part of life. And it's just to get them to understand it will happen. Whatever your stature in life is, you will have stress. Everybody has stress. It does come back down to that. Are they ready to try and quit? And acknowledging that it could be a very difficult time at the moment. So if it is a particularly difficult time, well then the door is always open again for when they are ready to engage with the service. So it's not that we're going to try and force them to try and quit it when it is a difficult time. But some people can find if it is a certain type of stress that can actually motivate them to quit or when they really dig into it, the cigarettes are actually adding to the stress of the whole situation. Again, everybody is different. So we'd really try and take it from exactly where the person is at and really try and work with them as an individual. Give me a, a sort of a brief overview then of what a smoking cessation program looks like. If I was a smoker and I phoned you up, what happens and how long does it happen for? Generally, we see somebody once a week for six weeks in the one-to-one clinics. So as I said earlier, the week one is kind of really around the preparation and getting a little bit of history from the smoker, as in how long they've smoked for, did they stop before, whether it was successful or not to be able to build on that and know where they're at. Week two, then generally we would look at the nicotine replacement therapies and the Champex information so that they can make an informed choice as to what's best for them and what will suit them. Or sometimes if they've used something successfully in the past before, they might say, oh no, I just want to use that because that worked for me really well before. And that's fine as well. Week three, then generally we look at going through a quit plan, setting a quit date if that's appropriate at that time. And then the follow up weeks, then when they've stopped smoking, we will look at the quit smoking without waking, the kind of healthy eating, the food pyramid, things like that. And we will do a session on stress control, kind of getting new habits and new ways of dealing with stress because nicotine is a stimulant. So anything that's a stimulant can't actually relax you physically. And again, most smokers will say or think or feel that cigarettes relax them. So when your nicotine level drops, you're actually in a slight withdrawal situation. So by having another cigarette, you're topping up your nicotine levels. So that's where the body gets that kind of like, oh, yes, I'm back now. My nicotine level is up. Obviously, you're not thinking that in your head, but that's what's happening physiologically that your body is going, yeah, you've topped me back up now. I feel better again. So in that session, we'd be talking about different stress control techniques. And we have a six week stress control course with the HSC that we would tell people about that they can attend as well, because, you know, one session is a small amount to talk about stress and how to deal with stress. And again, generally, I would say, you know, non-smokers have stress as well. And it's about learning different coping mechanisms. What are you going? to do and again when smokers are stopping I would always say you know the day you stop that doesn't mean you won't have stress the next day or the day after or bill comes in the door that you can't pay or something like that life goes on after you stop smoking so you have to change your way of dealing with stressful situations after you've stopped and then generally the last session we kind of talk about physical activity and relapse prevention and things like that because that's the stage you're at at that stage you know three weeks post quit if I relapse can I still come back to you absolutely 
Yeah, okay. absolutely. And like Jose said, like we're totally non-judgmental, totally friendly and facilitative. So we're never going to say, oh, here's Jose back again. Gosh, he's gone back smoking. Never, ever. Anything like that. It's always welcoming, always non-judgmental. And we want somebody to come back if they did happen to relapse so that we can help and support them again so that they don't end up smoking for another number of years before they come back. So absolutely, we want somebody to come back if they relapse. Now, if somebody has a cigarette within the first two weeks of them quitting, we call that more of a slip than a relapse because they haven't gone back buying cigarettes. They haven't gone back smoking regularly. So we would consider that a slip as opposed to officially full relapse. We want to, I suppose, help that person and support that person if they had that just one cigarette that we would kind of always talk about. You have to be careful of the just one cigarette after you stop because whether it's six months, 12 months, 12 years down the road, the receptors in the brain are still there. So if somebody has just one cigarette down the road, which is very hard on somebody, they can go back smoking very quickly. So we always want to be there to support somebody if and when they do relapse that absolutely there 100% for them. I'm getting the sense then that the support then that you guys offer is like you're walking with people or you're guiding people to a different way of living within the world. Is that fair to say that there's a lot of sort of new behaviours being learnt, adjustments to be made? Definitely. So again, that's what the whole facilitation bit is. It is more like guiding, pointing people in the right direction, reflection, being able to listen to somebody and hear where they're actually at. So that's why we say it is like a conversation that we're having with the person. I think that's what's good about our service as well is that we have one-to-one face-to-face clinics as well as groups. Groups are good for lots of people as well because you're not only sharing with the facilitator. So like say if I was running a group, let's say a group of 10 to 15 people, we would meet for let's say an hour or hour and a half for six weeks or more for other types of groups. You can benefit from listening to the other members of the group. So there's a dynamic there. You hear other people's experiences. You can kind of work together in many groups. You can organize yourself, especially now with WhatsApp groups and things. You can support each other in between sessions, in between the week. So groups are a very good way of quitting too, if you are up for that, because you're getting the same types of protocols in that the structure is going to be essentially the same, and yet you'll have other people to kind of share your experiences with. That's another great option that we would have. Can I finish with this question, guys? there was one piece of advice you would give somebody who is pondering on the idea but are absolutely terrified, what one or two pieces of advice would you give that person? Do you help them maybe take a step towards a service like yours? I would probably say it's never too late to give up because sometimes smokers, if they've been smoking a long time, I think, oh, I've smoked too much now. I've done all the damage. You know, there's no point in stopping 20 minutes after you stop smoking, you will get a benefit to your health from stopping smoking. No matter if you've smoked for five years, 50 years, whether you've smoked five cigarettes a day, 50 cigarettes a day, it doesn't matter. There's always a benefit to quitting smoking. And I suppose the other part would be never quit on quitting. If you've done it before and you've relapsed or you've tried it a few times and you haven't been able to manage just let's say stay off them longer than a day and think oh as we were talking about earlier the willpower oh I don't have the willpower that's too hard or as you were saying earlier oh I'm too stressed I couldn't survive without my cigarettes there is a way smoking is a doable thing it might be a little bit difficult at the start or you might need that extra support or you mightn't have ever had support before or you mightn't have ever used a smoking cessation aid that helps. There is always a way. It's very doable. 
and give it a try. You've nothing to lose. You've nothing to lose coming to a clinic, coming to a group, everything to gain. We're very nice. We're very friendly. We won't be giving out in any shape or form. Sometimes people come in and say, oh, the doctor said or the consultant said. And it's not that what they're saying isn't true, because obviously medically smoking isn't going to help anybody. They've only, I suppose, been told about the negative things or the bad things about smoking. Whereas, as I said earlier, we try and emphasise and go on what's good about stopping. What benefits are you going to get? What's good for you to stop? And we would often ask that. We would do a decisional balance and a smoking diary at the first one. And we're going, well, what's in it for you? What are you going to get out of stopping smoking? What is it? that's going to benefit you as opposed to your family or your doctor or your anyone else that might be nagging you about it. Because again, we will have people coming in going, family are always giving out. They're always giving out. And we're going, yeah, that's not really helping you, is it? And they'd go, yeah, it's not. But they think it is. I'm going, yeah. But we understand where they're coming from. I suppose we've experience of hearing all the different stories from the different smokers over the years. And we're on their side, but we're there to help and support them. How about you, Jose? As Rosemary said, you have nothing to lose. It's a free service. And if you want to take that control back, a lot of it comes back down to control. At the end of the day, I think most smokers will say it has taken a lot of that control from them. And when they do manage to quit, they feel so much better about so many things, not just for their health, but just from the point of view of taking that control back in their lives, not having to plan around when am I going to have to buy more cigarettes? What happens when I get to this particular place? Can I smoke outside? I'm going to have to pop out all the social aspect to it. So I think taking that control back and it's so doable. It's just a matter of deciding that you want to do it and coming into the service. So I'd, I'd highly recommend just engaging with the service. Give us a ring, contact us and win-win. Guys, thank you so much for coming in to chat today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And I look forward to your next podcast. Until then, Slongo Foyle.